everyone. Welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael and I'm here with Andre. On this episode, titled Keeping It Moving," we discuss Nehemiah chapter 10 and talk about covenantal renewal, the Sabbath, and tithing. We hope you enjoy this discussion. What's up, Mike? How you doing, man? I'm pretty tired. I got up really early this morning and went to play tennis with a friend. And let's just say the Texas heat really wears you out. Yeah, sorry I'm late, dude. I was on hold with my stock app thing and it was, it was just impossible to get something sold but finally got it done and it only took an hour and 37 minutes on hold <laughs> to be able to do that but it's fine at least we can uh get started now we can i'm pumped to dive into nehemiah 10 we just had an amazing time discussing nehemiah chapter 9 the prayer of confession of god's people we talked about the history of israel and now we get to talk about covenantal renewal yeah, and this is going to be a nice, short and sweet episode, so let's just go ahead and dive right in, dude. Yeah, for sure. So looking at the covenant, just to remember how the prayer led into the covenant going from chapter 9 to chapter 10, one big theme in chapter 9 was God's grace and his sovereignty as he directed the history of his people through his covenants. And we saw his grace, his mercy continually returning to them. And then we're going to see this now as they recommit to the covenant. And then in the next episode, when we're discussing chapter 11, chapter 12, we're going to see how God led them into joy, how God was sovereign and bringing his people joy. So I just was really amazed at how God is gracious and he's sovereign in guiding his people into renewing this covenant. And they've confessed their sins. So it now makes sense that they would come into a new type or new feeling of relationship with God in the sense of this recommitment you could say and the last thing we saw was everyone was just really sad it said that they wept uh they felt really ashamed of all the sins that they had and they knew that they weren't doing uh, what was pleasing to god what would help them have a good relationship with god and now we see that they're actually happy and it's and it's because they're like actually like you can like tell they're like 100 percent all in on this new covenant with god and basically this covenant is a legal agreement with god and they're basically going to go ahead and list out um, what they're going to do and uh, to be able to have this covenant uh, with God again to renew it. Right. Let's add a little bit to the covenant talk. So just so anyone who's unfamiliar with the idea of God's covenant promises in the Bible, it would be, it's easiest to think about it in terms of a type of legal agreement because there are basically conditions or stipulations between God and his people. And a covenant is, is always in the Bible divinely imposed And usually God is offering some sort of provision and protection and guidance to his people in return or incongruence with their obedience. However, just because Israel often has failed in the Old Testament to live up to that standard of obedience doesn't mean God abandons his people. We even see God has wonderful plans for his people, such as when they're in exile and he promises them that he has plans to prosper them, as we talked about in Jeremiah 29, 11. And how you said that like God keeps his people in mind even as they break their promises and he and Israel obviously has an important place uh, in God's plan. It reminds me of when we went to that Bible study and we were talking about Revelation where even from day one until the end, God has a plan of how he's going to restore the people of Israel. Right, exactly. And so whether there's lots of disagreements on who Israel is, how that unfolds into the New Testament, but it's clear that God has plans for Israel, whether that is literal Israel, whether that is fulfillment in the church, but God has plans for his people, Israel, 
and the church is connected to those promises. And in Christ, since all of God's promises find their yes in Christ, we know that we're a part of that. And so when we think about God being faithful and sovereign with his promises in the Old Testament, we can have hope knowing that God is still sovereign, God is still in control, and God is still gracious today. And then all of his promises about the future and the coming of Christ again and new heaven and new earth, those things will all be true one day. Okay, and as we start getting into chapter 10, I thought it was I thought one thing that was very interesting was that we just saw the people observing their history, observing the laws of Moses. They understood very well what this covenant was. And if we like jump a little bit forward before going back to all the people who signed it, it's in verse 29 it says that the people understood that were they to break this covenant with the Lord, it would there was a curse associated with it. And it kind of just like adds to the significance of all the people who actually signed their names onto this covenant and that they really understood what was what they were agreeing to and that they were happy and pleased to do so. Right, exactly. So they're entering into this and it's clear in chapter 10 who is sealing this covenant, this idea of recommitment. So we see Nehemiah, who's the governor of Jerusalem at the time, listed first, who we've been talking about this whole time. We see in verses 3 through 9, the priests, the Levites in 9 through 13, and then in 14 through 27, it's just a few ver- a few names per verse, but it's just the lay families for the next, for those 14 verses. And what's really interesting, though, is there part of this list in verses 14 through 27 follows Ezra chapter 2, but then the list just keeps going. And I think, personally, that the most plausible explanation is just natural population growth, rather than some sort of miswriting or difference in the text or textual criticism or something. But what is interesting, though, is that as this covenantal renewal unfolds and they add stipulations and conditions to their obedience and the covenant, we see them adopt the law of Moses and then they expand upon it. Kind of like if you think of the famous wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do today? What would Jesus do right now? It's kind of like a what would Moses do? So they apply principles of Moses to their current situation. And they kind of just list these out. The next part is the obligations of the covenant. There's kind of just a few things that they're saying. Uh, basically, God, this is what we're going to do. We're listing it out. This is how we're going to live our lives. This is how we're going to set ourselves apart um, for your glory. We're going to set apart a part of uh, our uh, money, a part of our food for your glory, for your temple. And that's kind of, that, that's where they are. And so we're going to go ahead and get to look into all the different things that, that they're saying that are part of this covenant. Right. This is important. And it's part of the conversation about what exactly the law was even for back back if you think about Exodus and Leviticus and the, the Pentateuch, you see in verse 28, all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. This was the, so people are always wondering, you know, what was the point of that law in the Old Testament with, it might, it was 612 or 613 overall commandments. What was the point of all that? The point of that was God consecrating his people, setting them apart for a holy purpose, and making them distinct from the other nations. And this is exactly what we see here. They're separating themselves from the people of the land surrounding them and entering into a covenant with Yahweh as his chosen people. And so basically the first thing we see is that going off of that, setting themselves apart, is that they're not supposed to give their daughters to peoples of other lands, and they're also not supposed to take uh, daughters from the people of other lands for their own sons. And this seems pretty significant because at, at this time, marriage could have been a big part of uh, political power, uh, increasing like army size or getting land or that kind of thing. And they kind of just said, no, we're going to keep our, ourselves to the, uh, God's people and we're not going to go out and, and, and marry other people from other places, essentially. 
Exactly. And then we see just right after that, Andre was talking about verse 30. And then in verse 31, we talk, we see the Sabbath day, no, no marketplace transactional type of thing. And then at the end, we see the idea of a Sabbath year saying they'll forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So the Sabbath year, unlike the Sabbath infl- implemented with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the Sabbath year comes in Exodus 23. But I think the Sabbath is really important because people hear or say, you know, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So since Jesus is our ever-present Sabbath rest, we can forsake the Sabbath and the Sabbath doesn't matter. And I'm not one to say that we need to uphold the Sabbath as some sort of duty. Although I will say my mind about the Sabbath has been recently really changed. John Mark Comer has a great recent book that came out called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he spends an entire chapter on Sabbath and really just reoriented my perspective on it, talking about how Sabbath is both a day for rest and for worship. So what's important is we might think that on Sabbath, if we took a Sabbath today, that's a day to go buy groceries or a day to go shopping, but no work. But you see here in in verse 31, they aren't allowed to have transactions. There is no there is no shopping. And so what's interesting is that it would be a complete day off from all those things. It's not just a day off of work. It's a day, not just off of things, but a day for certain things. And those two things are rest and worship. And what's interesting though, is you have some modern commentators that are included in Comer's book that I really liked how they talked about how Sabbath is also a day of resistance. It's a resistance against globalism and capitalism and and everything else that's driving our minds perhaps away from the Lord and distracting us and making us busy. And now Sabbath and having a heart towards rest and silence and slowness and worship actually helps us reorient ourselves. So I I really liked that. And uh, just the fact that Sabbath is there right after I read this book really stood out to me. And I definitely see that as well because in verse 31 is as you were saying it specifically says if people from other lands bring their goods or they want to make their own transactions or whatever he's basically saying don't partake in that so basically he's calling them to not be greedy not just focus on making money but he wants them to do their business in a way that glorifies god and he wants them to take that rest on the sabbath and he wants them to focus on resting and focus on worshiping him and not worry about greed or making money or acquiring wealth or that kind of thing, which other people, he's saying other people might do it, but I don't want you to do it. Yeah. So what's really interesting about the Sabbath and just thinking about the biblical picture of it is we see God institute the pattern of the seventh day of rest in creation when he wasn't tired, but he instituted a model for his people that he rested from creation on the seventh day in Genesis chapter one and leading into chapter two. And then In the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But I'm pretty sure from remembering in Deuteronomy 5, when Moses retells the Ten Commandments, it's retold as, Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. So not just remember the Sabbath, but also observe it, a re-emphasis on the importance of having a day of rest and of worship dedicated to those things so that we might be reoriented around the story of the church. And something you mentioned was if, it, if we were living in, in this time and under this covenant, that going to the grocery store, for example, that would be something that we wouldn't be doing. Like, what are your thoughts on that just on modern day uh, Christian living and how we should observe the Sabbath today? I never want to say that we should have a day off where we 
necessarily cannot go to the grocery store because I don't I think that would be legalistic, meaning in the idea of legalism, just meaning to add rules to the faith or add rules to the Bible. So I don't want to do that. But John Mark Comer really did argue in his book really well, really convicting to me just about how it can be really helpful. And he talked about how he does it with his family, how they put their phones away for 24 hours, how they spend the entire day dedicated to rest and to worship. So while I wouldn't say shopping on one day of the week is prohibited in the Bible for Christians, I would say that it could be a helpful practice and something that I actually look to adopt as the fall semester begins in August. I think something interesting to think about that I kind of just came to mind is if not going to the grocery store is something that helps you uh, be in awe and remembrance and worship of God, then maybe that's something that you do. But if for example, like you said, not being on your phone for a certain amount of time and instead doing something like uh, going to church, singing worship songs, reading your Bible, that kind of thing. If that's what makes you actually observe the Sabbath and observe uh, what God wants you to do through that, which is worship him and rest, then whatever that is for you, then I think that's like a solid place to start. Whereas it doesn't need to just be like, oh, I'm not going to go to the grocery store because if that really doesn't like keep your, your thoughts on the Lord, it really does nothing for you, I guess. Exactly. So it's less... It's less about following particularly particular observances and more about just centering our hearts around the Lord and perhaps having a day of the week where we do that, just following the pattern of creation and how God has instituted that for his people. And I think one of the most helpful things, I had it a little bit before the lockdowns, but particular dur- particularly during the lockdowns, has just been to have a time limit on my phone for certain apps like social media because it really limits my time where where I'd just be wasting time on those things and I can spend time reading books or I can spend time preparing, say, for the podcast or just spending extra time in the Word. And so I actually think it's in this, it's in John Mark Comer's book, the same one I just referenced, but he says how the average American spends something like 705 hours a year on social media. And based on the average American's reading pace, if they just dedicated 417 of those 705 hours to reading books, which sounds crazy because 417 is over an hour a day, but think about how many hours you spend on social media based on that statistic. He said if we spent 417 hours a, d- hours a year on reading books, instead of spending that time on social media, based on the average American's reading pace, we would all read approximately 200 books a year which was just astounding to me, really convicting. If your life feels like, and again, we don't have any sponsors, but if your life feels like it's rushed, if you feel like you're in a hurry, you need to slow down and spend more time with the Lord, buy his book. You you need to ruthless, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I think it's that's super interesting. For me, I definitely have the, the limit and it kind of, it alerts me. One thing for me though that I did last semester was I always was worried that I wouldn't be able to get my work done or wouldn't be able to do my schoolwork or would be missing out on something or whatever. And especially this rang true on on Sundays where I felt like, oh, I don't have enough time for church today because going to Passion, it would be like three three hours between uh, just worship and then the service and talking to people after and then everyone would want to go to dinner, which would add even more time. And I was always just really stressed out that I wouldn't have enough time to do my homework and that kind of thing. And I kind of just realized at one point that just taking that one day to just be like this whole day, whatever happens is is going to be fine because I'm going to go to church. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to spend time with my friends. I'm going to go after and have dinner with people who are also following after the Lord and are like-minded and that kind of thing. It just really opened up 
a bunch of possibilities for me of just feeling so much more at peace and at rest starting my week and just being in a, like a much better headspace and not just worrying so much about school and just having confidence that my hard work throughout the week would pay off. For sure, exactly. My my college pastor in Norman encouraged me and some of our other student leaders just to have a 12 or a 24-hour period each weekend where we don't do any homework, we don't do anything of that sort, so our minds can rest and be renewed for the next week. And I just really look forward to thinking more about that and how I can implement that this fall. And so just looking back into the text, we just keep going down after the verses about the Sabbath. So then they say they take the obligation to make to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, talking about maintenance of the temple at in verse 33 as well. And then what's really interesting is verse 34, verse 35, we see the idea of casting lots for the wood offering that that kind of resembles something from Samuel and David's time in first Samuel. And then verse 35 reminded me of one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Cain and Abel, because they said they obligate themselves to bring the first fruits of the ground. And part of the problem to some people of Cain's offering to God in the Cain and Abel story in Genesis 4 is that he may have just brought some of the offering of the fruit and not the first fruits of the ground. And while it's also possible that Cain's offering wasn't good because it was a bloodless offering, it wasn't it wasn't like Abel's in that, in that it was a firstborn of the flock. It's also possible that it was because he wasn't bringing the best of his offering. So they're saying we're bringing the best of the ground, the first fruits of all fruit of every tree. And in this part, it, it, it really spoke to me that they would bring the first of, of whatever they were doing to the Lord and for the glorification of, of God, but also for the maintenance of, of his temple. One thing, One question that I had, though, was, in verse 35, it says that they obligated themselves to do this. That was really interesting to me because I know that a lot of times in church, and I, I don't know exactly where in the Bible it says, but there's always an emphasis on on joyful giving. And this kind of seems that doesn't really uh, exactly go along with that just because it says that they obligate themselves. So I don't really know what, what's going on there. Right, exactly. So... One thing that's worth noting is that they're renewing the covenant. There's an idea of recommitment. So they want to obligate themselves to be faithful and add stipulations. And this is part of the idea of a curse. If their oath is broken, the curse comes into effect. Andre talked about that in verse 29. And so I do think that Christians should be cheerful givers. And one of the ways that we do that is just to come before God and recognize his ultimate generosity towards us. And so as a result, we realize that nothing we have is our own. So we should be able to give it all. We should be able to give a lot because what all we all that we have is God's. I've heard it put this way. If you gave to your church and then you found out that your pastor went and bought himself a Corvette, you would probably be upset because you would feel that he was using the money you had given in the wrong way. In the same way, if God gives us all the resources imaginable or maybe just some of the resources imaginable, but certainly enough to live, and then we go out and just spend it selfishly or don't um, invest in eternity by giving to the cause of the kingdom, then in similarly, it would be true that God would probably be thinking, I gave you that money for a purpose. I'm generous to you and, and we should be generous to those people. Just how we would expect money that we give to a church to be given to the right causes. And this idea of giving generously and being a cheerful giver comes from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when Paul is 
making a collection for Christians in Jerusalem, and he's saying, be a cheerful giver. However, I will say, though, that just because we're supposed to be cheerful givers and Bible reading often sounds like it should be cheerful for, or it sounds like that from people who love it or prayer should be, I don't necessarily think every time we enact or engage in a spiritual discipline, whether it be those or fasting or anything else, it should be joyful. There's part of the idea of a discipline where we only get to enjoy the the fruitfulness of being in God's presence after we have put in the time. It's more of an investment into the long run. It's not that every time we spend, every minute we spend in God's word is going to be this supernatural experience that overflows with power it's that we're it's like we're investing in a bank account that has interest that's going to pay off long run and so we experience that joy day after day in the long run but it's not necessarily in every single moment so when they obligate themselves in verse 35 i would just say i think they are cheerful and at the end of at the end of chapter 11 we're going to see next week they are cheerful about what they're doing here and i just think you know, if you want to grow closer to the Lord and you know that's going to be a joyful experience for yourself, you might obligate yourself to, you know, practice the disciplines or do what's necessary. And I think that's what they're doing here. That's that's really good, dude. And one thing that I really took away from what we just said was just as we would expect a church that we're giving to, to be a good steward of the money that, that we're tithing, that God also expects us to be good stewards. And I think that's just, that's just really great because we have that expectation of a church and and how would we not expect God to have that expectation of us, you know? And that's just crazy. And that kind of just goes along with what the rest of the chapter is saying. They're basically going through and describing the tithes that they're going to give and how they're going to um, keep the temple and it having food and it having the ability to take care of all the things that God cares about. And basically at the end it just says, we will not neglect the house of our God. They're basically just laying out what they're going to do to maintain the temple, to make sure that it's running how it should, and to make sure that it doesn't go into ruin how it was pre Ezra and Nehemiah restoring the wall and restoring the temple and restoring the city. Exactly. And you might you might think or we might be able to open Nehemiah to this chapter and feel like maintenance of the temple really feels just like a boring subject. We don't even have a temple nowadays. But it is important. This maintenance is significant because it bound all of the Jewish families to service to Yahweh and it bound them to one another. So really a community project dedicated to the Lord and his covenant promises. So that's why it was important. And as Andre says, they close with, we will not neglect the house of our God, a recommitment to the ways of the law and proper worship so that they might honor God properly in the temple. And that's, that's a beautiful closing to the chapter, just as they recommit to the covenant and they desire to be obedient to God and they want God's provision and God's protection and they're joyful in the Lord. I think that's all we got, but thank you guys so much for tuning into this discussion. I hope you guys enjoyed it. For sure. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back Thursday with an exciting episode. Hope you tune in.